Now, in today's podcast, we're going to be hearing from James Rickard, who is a pretty well-known economist out there. I thought it would be great to bring him on to hear his thoughts. It's a little bit of a permabear viewpoint. His new book called The New Great Depression, which we are in right now. But it's not like the doom and gloom depression that you hear about you know, people losing their jobs. It is more of dragging economy as the new long-term thing. I think I was asking him, can you put it to a percentage? And he mentioned that the economy is not going to be chugging along at 3 4 or 5% plus, but somewhere between 0 and 2%. And I didn't say it on the podcast, but I'm like, yeah, cool, man. 2%, 1%, I'll take that. I'll just underwrite the deal to be 1% or 2% a year, annual escalators, and I'm good. I'll take that. I'd rather have that than to have these ups and down swings of plus 5, negative 2, plus 3, negative 4. I'll take plus 1% or 2% as the normal trend going on. The second point, he is big on investing in gold and hoarding cash. I don't know if that's the best thing. Certainly not the thing for guys under half a million, million dollars net worth. I feel like you have to be putting skin in the game and investing in it, growing it. But he brought up some good ideas of cash is like a call option where you can roll that money into something when it does come up. Too bad most people that are never even in the game, never get started in the game, don't even know what a good deal is and they hit them or don't have access to them if they're not in the game actively. So that's something if you're a newer investor, even an intermediate investor, something to think about and to get in the game. That's how we're getting all these great deals now is because we were buying in 2020 and we were reliable buyers. So now brokers are thinking about us first in a lot of these markets. So if you guys haven't checked out the website, simplepassivecashflow.com, check out the Simple Passive Cashflow Guide on QRPs. If you haven't heard about a QRP, it avoids UDFI and UBIT tax. If you don't know what that is, go and read about it. SimplePassiveCashflow.com slash QRP. Check out a free book there. Putting in your address, we'll ship it to you. I think in most cases that you're going to use your retirement funds, the QRP is the better way of going. The self-directed, Roth, IRA, eh, sometimes it's I would probably use it in the minority of cases, but in each of these are their tools for the job. You only use the tool in the right situation, and that is what we do here at Simple Passive Cashflow, educate you guys to make the right decisions to get to financial freedom. Join our investor club at simplepassivecashflow.com club, and enjoy the show. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Today we have James Rickards here, author of The New Great Depression. Check it out on Amazon. It should be out now. But let's dig right into it because a lot of you guys know who James is. And he writes a lot about macro economies and I thought bringing him on would be a great way to get a little bit of different context or different viewpoint on things to when you're reading headlines how do you take it in but I guess James let's start off with you're saying that we are in the new great depression if you can explain that to us sure it's important to understand the distinction lane between a recession and a depression uh recession has that kind of a technical quantitative definition it's two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. There are a few other bells and whistles involving employment and so forth, but 
two consecutive quarters of declining GDP is a good uh, rule of thumb. There's actually a body that determines that. It's uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge. They're the, they call the Boston strikes on recessions. They tell you when to start it, when it ended. They, they said, pardon me, that this uh, recession began in February 2020. I think that's correct. They haven't said it's over, but we can look at the data and pretty much see that it was over. By probably July, uh, third quarter growth was very strong, not strong enough to get us out of the hole we had fallen into, but but strong enough to end a recession. But depression is different. Depressions are much more long-lasting, and people incorrectly assume that, well, gee, if a recession is two quarters of declining GDP, depression is worse, a depression must be 10 quarters of declining GDP, like a really long recession. And that's not the definition. A depression is, you can have growth in a depression, but the point is, it's depressed growth. In other words, it's growth below trend. For example, take the expansion from 10-year expansion from 2009 to 2019. The economy grew for 10 years. It was the longest expansion in U.S. history, but it was also the weakest expansion in U.S. history. Average annual growth was about 2.2%, and all recessions, sorry, all recoveries since 1980, average growth was 3.2%. So in other words, you were growing at a full percentage point less than the trend. And so it's that below trend growth, depressed growth relative to trend, that's what makes a depression. And that, that's what we're in now. So we had growth in the third quarter. That's fine. We'll probably have growth in the fourth quarter, although the data is, they keep revising the data downwards so that target gets smaller. For the full year to 2020, that's going to be one of the weakest years, the largest negative growth, largest drop in GDP ever recorded. The question is, where are we now? My view is we're in a second technical recession in the depression. And by the way, this happened in the original Great Depression from 1929 to 1940. There were two technical recessions. There was a recession from 1929 to 1933, very severe. And then there was growth. Uh, 1933 was one of the best years in, in the stock market, 34, 35, 36. We had growth. But the problem was we had dug, dug such a deep hole that even with growth, you weren't back to where you were. So in 1934 or 35, unemployment fell from 25% to 14%. That sounds good, except it's still 14%. In other words, it's still, it's still extraordinarily high. And then 1937, 38, we had a second recession. And that's what prolonged it and turned it into the Great Depression. We're going through something similar right now. I, I would We're going to have a recession in the first quarter of 2021, the quarter we're in right now. Well, this will be what they call back-to-back -back recession. We had a you know, recession in pretty much the first half of 2020 and a new recession beginning in the first quarter, at least, of 2021, all in the context of a Great Depression. So I focus on the depression aspect of it. You can have growth. You can have declining unemployment. There are certainly investment opportunities. But you're looking at depressed growth. You're looking at a prolonged period of change behavior. We're not going to get back to normal or there's forget about normal. We'll live through it. We'll come out the other side, but things will be permanently different. And that affects all kinds of expectations about growth, asset allocation. And that's really what I focus on in the book. Hit some of these uh, COVID questions here at the end, because that's a little bit more of the micro cycle, right? What we're talking about today is more of a longer time horizon. So just to understand it correctly from my perspective, you're saying depression is, you can still, be, still have growth in a depression, but it's just not at the pace of 3%, 4%, 5%. It's just depressed growth, in other words. Right. 1%, 1%, 2% a year 
over five, 10 years that can still be in the technical term, a depression is what I'm understanding. That's right. But again, again, I'll go back to the 2009, 2019 recovery, 10 year recovery. And I said growth was 2.2%. Trend growth prior to that, going back to 1980 was 3.2%. If you want to go back to the end of World War II, it was more like 4.2%. So that's the kind of growth. So you say, gee, 2.2, 3.2, it's only one percentage point. What's the big deal? No, one percentage point applied to a $20 trillion economy compounded over 10 years, that adds up to four to $5 trillion in lost wealth. In other words, yeah, we had an expansion, but it would have been $4 trillion greater. There would have been $4 trillion more wealth created if we had been able to get back to 3.2%, at which we did not. The same thing is true today. So yeah, you had growth. The, the numbers are in, in the first quarter, going back to 2020, First, first quarter, GDP was down about 5%. Second quarter, down about 31%. And the third quarter, it was up about 33%. And people go, well, okay, we went down 31%. We went up 33%. Aren't we back where we started? The answer is no, because the 33% was applied to a much lower base. In other words, if you start the year at 100, say 2019 is your baseline. It's called uh, like 100% of 2019. You go down 5%. And then you go down 32%. Now you're around 67% of the old baseline. So even if you go up, let's say 30% or a little higher, 32%, that only gets you back to 87. It gets you 20 points. It gets back to 87. You're still 13 points below, 13 percentage points below the old trend. And even if we have, say, 10% growth in the fourth quarter, which is some estimates show, okay, that gets you another eight points, but you're still back to 95. In other words, you're still below 2019 baseline growth. We're not going to get back to 2019 levels of growth until 2023 at the earliest. We're not going to get back to 2019 employment levels in terms of total jobs until 2025 at the earliest. That's if nothing goes wrong in the meantime, but I expect number of things will go wrong, including a new recession right now. A lot of people don't know, Lane, you know, they know that the stock market peaked in uh, October 1929, and it crashed 89.2% by 1932. So almost 90%. That's what a real market crash looks like. And then you ask people, when did it get back to the 1929 level? When did it get back to the old high? And people go, oh, it must have been late 30s, early 40s. No, it was 1954. In other words, it took 25 years to get back to the old high. The Nikkei index in Japan hit 40,000 in 1989. It's still not there. That's people talk about the lost decade. We'll try three lost decades. Here we are 30, over 30 years later, and it's still nowhere near the old high. And so that's, and I would say Japan's been in a depression the whole time. So that's what depressions look like. They're multi-year, they're actually intergenerational. You can have growth, but it's not trend growth. And it's not enough to overcome the, the damage that was done. So we're still way below even with growth in the third and fourth quarters, we're still well below the 2019 base, and we're not going to get to that level for several years at least. So I think a lot of people understand this as if you, your stocks drop a bunch, where it's going to almost have to come up twice as much to get up to where you were, that phenomenon with numbers. And then you also mentioned something there too. I think a lot of us, we understand what's going on in Japan, the last decades, did, do they have negative GDP growth or is that kind of what you're alluding towards that you, the U.S. is going towards? They have both. I think the U.S. is going to resemble Japan. I think it has resembled Japan since 2007, going back before the global financial crisis. I think that will continue. 
So just to use Japan as an example, I said they're in a 30-year depression, which they are. They've had a, a series of technical recessions. Now, the recession might last six months, nine months, a year, sometimes longer, and then they have growth, but they never get back to trend growth. They never get back to the old level. That's my point. Now, Japan's a, a, an interesting place. And I had a, a conversation with him. He was known in the 1980s as uh, Mr. Yen. He was the uh, assistant finance minister of Japan. But I was talking to him about this. So we're in Korea about exactly what we're discussing now, which is that Japan's growth has been very weak. We're in and out of recession with a prolonged depression, but some growth along the way. And he said, yes, but you have to understand that the population is declining. So if you calculate Japan on a per capita basis, they're actually doing better than on an absolute basis. Absolute growth has been very weak. But if you spread that growth among a smaller population, the, the per capita numbers are actually significantly higher, and which is true. That's just fifth grade math. So where you end up is one person owns the whole country and he's the richest guy in the world. That's the you know, reductio ad absurdum of what he was describing. He was technically correct, but that doesn't work in America. I mean, our population is increasing. We're a country that likes growth and we like growth at the individual level and the, and the national level. So the idea that we could be satisfied with weak growth and a declining population is just, it's just not going to happen. It could be in for a prolonged bout of weak growth. And then the, the policy question is, well, how do you change that? How do you get out of that? How do you deal with it? If you've been following my journey, I've been selling my initial real property and transitioning into syndication deals lately for a more purely passive investment strategy. One critical part of my portfolio is the American Home Preservation Fund, or what folks in the Hui call AHP for short. George Newberry, once apartment owner, operator, and mentor to me, is now sponsoring the podcast. His private fund, which by the way also accepts non-accredited investors, cuts the middlemen out and allows you to invest directly with him to fight the mortgage crisis in America. Join him by purchasing distressed mortgages while getting a double-digit annual return paid monthly. Find something else better out there? Well, let me know. Feel good knowing that you are helping families stay in their home after buying their underwater note at a huge discount. Invest as little as $100 by going to ahpservicing.com investors. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. I like to buy stuff. Well, that's a liability. Yeah, so, so if you guys haven't heard of this term of changing world demographics, aging and birth, I think that was in Mr. Rickard's last book. So you guys want to check that out, but definitely a big impact to... So America's population is growing. Barely. It's funny, you look around, it's a great question. You look around the world, Japan's population is declining. Russia is declining. Europe is declining. China is flat, but they're approaching a level where they're, they're not going to be at replacement levels. Of course, this is the legacy of the one child policy, which was, we don't have to do a deep dive on that, but that was one of the great blunders of history and aging rapidly. So Japan's flatlined. Now, until recently, the United States population had been growing, not at a high rate, but faster than all those other countries I mentioned mainly because of immigration. The natural birth rate of people in the country was not much better than Europe at or slightly below replacement level, but we had enough immigration to increase the population. But pardon me, partly because of the policies during the Trump administration, that immigration has been truncated. So we may now be closer to a flat, shall we say, population growth. And of course that, that affects 
output. There are lots of ways to think about GDP, the poor part definition, consumption, investment, government spending, and, and net exports. But there's an even simpler way to think about it, get to the same place, which is how many people are working and how productive are they? It's working population times productivity. Productivity has been flattish and not very strong for reasons that are not entirely well understood, but it's just the case. And population growth, here we're talking about the labor force, not the total number of people from coast to coast, but how many people are in the labor force. That labor force participation has been declining and fell very sharply during the technical recession that we had in 2020. If your population's declining and your productivity's declining, your GDP is not growing very much at all. That is the situation we're facing in the United States. And also like the, the way they keep those statistics on who unemployment has been changing to make it look rosier than it really is. Yes, but I would say there's another statistic which is more important, which is labor force, the labor force participation rate, which is down around 61% now. But as recently as you know the 1990s, early 2000s, it was around 67%. So that's a, a six and a half point decline or 10% decline, if you think of it as a percentage of the whole. That's a big deal. That number is the lowest it has been since the 1970s when women first started coming into the workforce in large numbers. Now, if you don't have a job, but you're not looking for a job, you're actually not counted as unemployed. The, the unemployment number we saw, and yeah, it declined from, it was it hit about 13% last spring, it came down to 10, now it's around uh, seven or so, maybe slightly higher. That's still high, but it's a significant improvement over where it was last uh, April, let's say. But that's not the number that matters. The number that matters is labor force participation. So what's happened is tens of millions of Americans have, have left the workforce. There, and I'm talking to ages 25 to 54. I'm not talking about a 68-year-old who wants to keep working or a teenager or we're not talking about disabled. There are perfectly good reasons for people not to be in the workforce. There are always some, but we're talking about able-bodied individuals between the ages of 25 and 54, prime working ages, who have left the workforce. If you're not banging on the door of the unemployment office looking for a job, they don't count you as unemployed, but you're not working and you're not producing. And so I look at that number because to me, it's a better gauge of economic growth. Displayed right here. So that's just simply Googling the uh, labor force participation rate kept up by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And is this pretty much it? This is what makes it hard, right? Because everybody hears the news headlines and we, we know they're always just trying to sell news headlines, just like how they're talking about how collections are horrible, but I don't see any of that issue happening. You know, they're right. always saying that unemployment's down, but is this really the way to cut through that noise? Yeah, th this is a more meaningful chart than the unemployment rate. Again, this is the uh, labor force participation rate. Now you notice you heard a lot of talk in last March, April, May about the V-shaped recovery and pent up demand and all that. And you look at that chart and look at labor force participation, well, you see the steep decline at the time of the pandemic. Okay, got it. It came back, but that's not a B. That's like a half a B. In other words, the bounce, now it's flat and going down again. So yeah, you had a little bit of a bounce back. That was to be expected after the we got through the original round of lockdowns in, in May and June. So you had that bounce back, but then it flatlined and now it's going down again. And that's consistent with what I said earlier, which is we're heading back into another recession right now. 
because there's a new round of lockdowns. You don't need a PhD to figure this out. You lock down half the economy, you're going to get a recession. It's as simple as that. And the other thing, Lane, is that people go, oh, the stock market's at all-time highs. My 401k is back where it was or even better, et cetera. There is a major disjoint, if you will, between the stock market indices and the health of the economy. Yeah, stock markets are at back to all-time highs. But I look at the S&P 500, and I call it the S&P 6 or maybe S&P 7 if you want to count Tesla now. And that was the S&P 500 is a cap-weighted index. That means if you have a larger market capitalization, you count for more in the index itself. 40% of the index is uh, about seven stocks, and we know what they are. It's Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, uh, Netflix, Apple, and now you can throw in Tesla and maybe one or two others. And they're the ones going up. They're the ones least affected by the pandemic. They're overwhelmingly digital. Okay, Amazon owns Whole Foods and Apple has some showroom type stores. But not much. Mostly they're online you know, and they're selling digital products and advertising and data mining, et cetera. So they were not only unaffected by the pandemic, but did better because that was the only place people could shop or communicate. But what about the S&P 490? What about the other stocks in the S&P 500? Have a look. They're all they're kind of flat to down there. Yeah, there's some individual uh, cases that have gone up, but on average, they are flat to down. So uh, we bet our whole economy on so there's six or seven stocks. So there's no relationship between how the stock market indices are doing and how the economy is doing. When we get back to the economy, who suffered the most and who continues to suffer the most? Small and medium-sized enterprises. So restaurants, bars, nail salons, dry cleaners, boutique shopping, on and on. There's a, a long list. And people look down their nose at that and they go, oh, you're a small business. Who cares? Or you're not Apple computer, whatever. Sorry. Those small businesses are 45% of GDP and 50% of all jobs. That's half the economy right there. If you crush it, you're going to crush the economy. I don't care where Apple stock goes. It'll, I'm not going to short it. It'll probably go up more. But you crushed and destroyed half the economy. And we're doing it again with the new outbreak in the COVID cases and fatalities, which are actually higher than they were last March and April when everyone thought the world was coming to an end. It's worse right now with this second wave. And it may get even worse because some of the new variants or strains or whatever you want to call it. It's not clear that they will be controlled by the vaccine. Even if they are, it's not clear that the virus won't mutate further to escape the, the vaccine. They call it mutation escape or the immunity escape. In other words, the idea is that the virus, first of all, scientists are not even sure if this is alive or not. I, I talk about that in the book. It's a, it's something. It's got some RNA in it. It's got a shell and it, it exists. We can see it under an electron microscope. It's not clear that it's alive, but it's really good at replicating itself by taking over cells. That's how infection spread. Now, if you create antibodies to the virus or you can get antibodies through a vaccine and you get hit with the virus, your body can fight back. That's what vaccines do. But so the virus, think of the virus as trying to survive, right? It, all of a sudden, if more and more people have the vaccine, more and more people have immunity, get close to herd immunity, the virus has nowhere to go. Every time it jumps from one body to the next, it runs into the antibodies or, as I say, the vaccine or whatever. What does it do? It mutates in ways that do an end run around those particular antibodies. You need new vaccines, new antibodies to stop it. This is just how viruses behave. It's been true throughout history. It's why you get these second waves, or in our case, we may even be, be heading for a third wave. So this pandemic is far from over. And the vaccine is great. N nice job. Uh, pharmaceutical companies, the Trump administration did a great job of 
funding it and getting bureaucratic roadblocks out of the way. And it was in, done in record time for something of this magnitude. That's all to the good, but it doesn't mean it's over because we actually already with this new UK South African strain or variant could be seeing the virus like Houdini escaping from the existing antibodies and finding new ways to infect people. So I, I want to go back to wrapping up the depression discussion. So you, you mentioned productivity and the percent of labor force participation rate. What is the cause of that? I don't know if you can speculate. Maybe it doesn't matter, but what do you think is the general cause of that? Is just people lazier these days or? No, I think there are a couple of causes. One is, is demographics. As I said, the population is aging and not expanding as fast as it used to. So that some of it's demographic. People get to retirement age. No reason you can't work at 68 years old. Bernie Sanders has gone strong and he's, he's getting close to 80. But the point being, that is a time when people retire and check out, then the workforce is going to decline and you don't have as many younger people entering the workforce. You have millennials now, Gen Z is coming along, but um, not quite at that replacement level. But that's not the only factor. The other factor is because so many jobs have been moved to China and elsewhere, not just China, but China is probably the biggest culprit, where are the, the mining jobs, the steel jobs, the assembly line jobs, the skilled craftspeople, et cetera. You don't need a, nothing wrong with college, but you don't need a college degree to, to work on assembly line. You need some training and, and some smarts, but those jobs are largely gone. And what are we replacing them with? We're replacing them with the gig economy, a barista, et cetera. And by the way, there's dignity in all work. There's not, nothing wrong for with being a barista, good for you, or an Uber driver, but those jobs don't have the benefits and the pay scales and the security that uh, we're talking about. So a lot of people just drop out of the workforce. Drug use is going up. Obesity is a problem. Diabetes is a problem. A lot of areas are just totally depressed. There aren't any jobs around. People don't have the resources to necessarily pick up and move. I remember in the 1980s, there was a, a migration from Detroit to Dallas. People just got a U-Haul and moved to Texas and got another job. That's harder to do now, not just a question of having the resources, but there are plenty of jobs in Austin, but they're, they're high tech jobs. You do, you do need an engineering degree or, or something like that to jump on board there. The quality of the jobs, the lost opportunities, the depressed area, drug addiction, demographics, all these things come together and people just say, you know what, I'll sit on the couch in front of my widescreen TV and watch a football game. And maybe a relative has a job or someone else is paying the rent, or you got some a government check or something, but it's not a long-term solution. That's part of what we're going through. I've heard that there is immigration still coming into America and that's a lot of the blue collared workforce coming in and a lot of markets, there are new assembly plants opening up Mazda and Huntsville, stuff like that. But you think it's more of a paradigm between the coastal markets and more Southern Southeastern states, Florida. Is there a difference between people moving out of California or no jobs in California? I know homelessness is really bad out there in Washington and a lot of other cities. Yeah. When you talk about immigration, I mean, there are two completely different kinds of immigration going on. There's legal immigration with an H-1B visa or some other visas. And yeah, if you're an engineer from India, come on in, you'll get hired before you're off the plane. But that's A, a limited number. And those aren't really creating jobs for Americans. They're creating jobs for Indians who got an engineering degree. But that's relatively small compared to the whole. Most of the immigration is the opposite. They're coming through the Mexican border. They're pretty much impoverished. And they're not all Mexicans, by the way. They're from Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua and actually all over the world. If you can get to Mexico, you can probably get into the United States. 
those people are not getting jobs in Huntsville. They're, they're either dependent on the state or, yeah, okay, landscaping jobs, waitress jobs, maybe babysitters, et cetera. And again, let me be clear, there's dignity in all work. So I'm not disparaging, uh, prefer legal immigration. I'm not disparaging people who do what they have to do for themselves or their families. And I'm not disparaging that type of work. What I'm saying is that th those jobs do not have high salaries. They do not have benefits. They're not going to lead to uh, particularly uh, high growth or higher consumption. Maybe in the next generation, that's fine, but not now. So moving on to the, the COVID-19, which you know we're moving into 2021, where, where are we about halftime, first quarter? How do you see this playing out this year? The pandemic's getting worse. And it may get worse than that, depending on how the mutations go, which are unpredictable. I mean, a lot of mutations mean nothing. They're like, all right, a couple of sequences changed, but it didn't really change the behavior of the virus and the vaccine still works, et cetera. Some mutations are favorable in the sense that the virus gets less contagious and eventually it can fade entirely. Those are possibilities. The history of pandemics is that in most cases, not all, but in most, the, the mutations actually get worse. And the, the classic example of that was the Spanish flu, which by the way, lasted for three years. It was Spanish flu of 1918. Okay. But it was very bad 1919 and continued into 1920. So that was really spread over three years. And the first wave was kind of March, April, 1918, which was horrific. But then it seemed to go away in the summer, July, August, September were much better. It came back with a vengeance in October. 1918. And most of the fatalities were in that October, November, December, 1918 period. And then it faded again and came back for third wave in 1919, not as bad. So the, and that's true of the Hong Kong flu in 1958 and several other flu epidemics we've had recently. And I, COVID is not the flu, it's a coronavirus, but some of the mutation dynamics are the same. So the point is, well, the point is you don't know. Nobody can sit here today and predict what will happen exactly, but history and biology and virology suggest that mutations that, as I say, do this immunity escape that I talked about earlier can make it a lot worse. And we seem to be seeing something like that right now. But even if we don't, even if the vaccines work, the mutations don't get worse, and this fades over the course of 2021, it's going to take a year, by the way, at best, it doesn't mean the economy comes roaring back. This whole notion, you heard Larry Kudlow and everyone else talking in the last April and May, is like, yeah, it's bad right now, we're locked down. But where uh, there's, there's pent up demand, where the economy is going to come roaring back as soon as uh, we get through this. And a lot of the policy decisions in March and April were based on the fact that we'd be able to remove the lockdowns by July and August. And they you know, were expecting, as they say, pent up demand. But that's not true. For example, my wife and I, we were locked down, kind of quarantined like everybody else in March, April, and May. And usually we go out to dinner on a Friday night, but we didn't because we were locked down. Eventually in June, the restaurants opened up and my wife and I went out to dinner. We didn't order 10 dinners. We ordered one. And as if we had skipped nine weeks of dinners and then went out, we ordered one dinner. Those other nine were permanently lost. That was not a temporary loss. That was not a timing difference. That was a permanently lost income, permanently lost revenue. Besides which, when a restaurant, let's say you had 20 waiters and cooks and maitre d', whatever, and you shut down and then you reopened in the summer, you didn't hire back 20, you hired back 10, maybe, because capacity was reduced, people still weren't going out, et cetera. That's if you even reopened at all. A lot of small businesses did not reopen. Those, those losses are permanent. Again, I'm not talking about Apple computer. I'm talking about 
the other half of the economy, which is small and medium-sized enterprises. And there's data on all this. I'm not just speculating. I, and this is all in my book. By the way, in, in the book, it's got 200 endnotes. So you might want to buy just for the endnotes alone because I, I researched everything. I read over 100 peer-reviewed papers and uh, actually more than that. And, uh, and all the citations are there. So if I'm saying something, I, I tell the reader, don't argue with me, argue with the scientists because they're all footnoted and you can look at the source papers, but we have data on all this. Now we didn't have as much data in May and June when I was writing a lot of the book, but then the, the publication date got pushed back a little bit because of supply chain problems actually in the printing industry. But that gave me an opportunity to freshen it up in September, even as late as October. So we have the most recent data and it shows what I'm describing. There's, there's a mass migration out of New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, and a few other cities. And the people are going to Phoenix, Scottsdale, Miami, Nashville, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Boulder, Colorado, Denver, and a few other places. And part of the reason is climate's nice, but the, there are jobs there, but the taxes and the crime. You didn't have the kind of rioting and destruction that you saw in New York and Seattle and Portland. You don't see that in Phoenix and some of the other cities I mentioned, or Miami for that matter. So whether it's high crime, high taxes, density functions, lost jobs or whatever, there is this massive migration, which is interesting because in certain sectors, residential real estate is doing extremely well. Usually residential and commercial kind of move together based on interest rates and economic cycles, they can come up together or, or down together in a recession. But right now there's, there's a bifurcation. Residential real estate in the destination cities and suburbs is going up very strongly. Commercial real estate is nowhere near the bottom. It's just going to get worse, at least through 2021, probably even longer. That trend you mentioned in your past book, the move towards the urban exodus. I like that idea. That's why we try and stay out of the city core, out to the more suburbs, investing in those multifamilies out there. Right. And I think with the pandemic, I don't know if you want to expand anymore. The big cities are mostly blue. Most people are moving out to the red states. Any other kind of newer developments on that? That's, yeah, I don't really, I don't really get into politics. I, I say in the book, the virus is not a Republican or a Democrat. The virus just wants to kill you. So the, the virus you need to understand epidemiology and virology and what's going on, but it by itself, it's not political. Now you can politicize it if you want to, and a lot of people have, but I would simply make the point that the reason commercial real estate is down across the board, even in stronger cities like Miami and Phoenix, that's suffering. And clearly the exodus cities, as I call them, New York and Seattle and others are suffering even more. A lot of that has to do, some of it has to do with crime in the streets and the mayors and all that, yes. But uh, a lot of it has to do with the work from home environment, which very few large companies would have said, you know, two years ago, hey, I think everybody can work from home. We'll figure it out. We'll get some software or whatever. Nobody was saying that. But in the pandemic and the shutdown last March, they had no choice. You had to work from home because of the lockdown. Turns out it worked pretty well. There are pros and cons. We all get a little tired of living on Zoom, a little personal contact is socializing is a good thing for your mental health. But that aside, from a purely business point of view, the work from home model still works. So if you had 10 floors of a midtown office building, prime location in New York, and they're vacant because everyone's working from home, you're not going to go back to 10 floors. You might go back to two floors. You might have a, a locker room, not like we had in high school, but like a, a nice facility with a lot of attractive office space 
where people can basically reserve the office. So you're working from home, you call up, say, hey, I need an office and a conference room two days next week. And you book it, it's yours. You come in, you open your locker, there's a laptop and a, I don't know, sport coat and a tire, whatever you need, nice scarf, and you go sit in the office and you do your business. And then you go back and work from home. But that's the environment where everyone, it's not quite like, uh, it's a kind of office sharing, but it's not WeWorks in the sense that everyone's crammed in together. You could have a nice facility, but if it's always temporary and always rolling over, you only need two floors instead of 10 floors. So first of all, that slams the landlord, but the ripple effects are huge because it's not just that. It's okay. What about uh, commutation? What about public transportation, food trucks, restaurants, cleaning staff, maintenance staff, shopping? It's all the things that surround people coming to cities and working in, in fairly dense environments. That's down 80% and it's not coming back because the model's not coming back. We're a long way from the bottom. I understand what the stock market's doing. I would say, again, S&P 7, not the S&P 500. And I query whether that's a bubble. I don't want to go short Tesla right now. You probably get really getting run over by an 18 wheeler, but I don't want to buy it either because I do see it as a bubble, something that's going to reverse fairly severely once this new stage two of the recession sinks in. But again, commercial real estate and small and medium-sized enterprises, including a lot of retail, which is half the economy, have been slammed and are not coming back quickly. So our listener base is pretty smart. They, they don't just read general headlines on people are moving out of the cities. They, they understand somewhere in the pile, there is an emerging market out there that is doing better than the rest. Any particular emerging markets in America that you like or... Yeah, as I said, we already talked about residential real estate in the target cities. So I'd say, again, Nashville, Miami, Phoenix, and, and others as attractive. 10 year treasury notes are set to rally. We're probably going to get to negative yield maturity. And yield maturity in a 10 year note is set by secondary market trading. So that has nothing to do directly with the Fed funds policy rate, which is you know basically an overnight rate. The Fed can stay at zero, not go negative in terms of the policy rate. But there's nothing stopping 10-year treasury notes from having a negative yield of maturity. All it takes is secondary market trading. I'm a seller, you're a buyer. There's a strip of coupons associated with the 10-year note. The minute you pay me a price that's greater than the present value of the coupons and the principal, you're going to have a negative yield of maturity. Now, that's okay. There might be a lot of reasons to do it. One might be that you think rates are going to go even lower so you can sell to somebody else at a higher price. The other thing is if you're a foreign investor, you can lose on the dollar denominated yield maturity, but make money on the currency. If the dollar gets stronger against the euro based investor can make profits in euro, even though the cash flow in dollars was negative because you have higher exchange rate. So there are plenty of reasons for it. We see this all over the world. Bunds are of negative bunds, Japanese government bonds, lots of bond markets have negative yields to maturity. There's no reason that the dollar, the, the treasury note market can't do the same thing. If it does, you'll be looking at huge capital gains because right now the yield of maturity is about 95 basis points. Well, if you go from 95 basis points to let's say negative 50 basis points, that's a huge capital gain because interest rates go down, prices go up. And so that's how you you capture your profits. That, so that can be large. I like gold for about 10% of your portfolio. There are opportunities and alternatives. Again, we talked about residential real estate funds, but I think natural resources, water, agriculture, some other sectors will do fine. And there's also room for a big allocation to cash. And people go, wait a second, why would I want cash? It has no yield. A couple of things. Number one, if you have deflation 
and I think right now deflation is a greater danger than inflation. If you have deflation, even with zero return, your real return could be 2%. It could be your best performing asset because in, in deflation, prices are dropping. So you're not getting return, a nominal return on your cash, but the cash is worth more because the price has dropped. So there's a real gain there. But number two, and probably more importantly, cash has huge optionality. If you have cash, that's the functional equivalent of an at-the-money call option on every asset class in the world. Uh, and we're going to need greater visibility and you need to be nimble to decide what to do. So you can have some investments today, but if you go all in, you say, why well, no? I want to be all in residential real estate or all in some alternative fund or whatever it may be. And you find out six or eight months from now that, oh, gee, deflation's worse than I thought, or maybe inflation's worse than I thought. Maybe this particular sector is not so hot. It can be very expensive, if not impossible, to get out of those asset classes. Try getting your money back from Henry Kravis ahead of schedule. It's you know, good luck. So the point is the person with cash can be more nimble because as we get greater vis visibility, you have no impediments to the pivot. You can pivot here or there, depending where the opportunity lies. And that's valuable. And for most people, a lot of experts will say, you know, with the Fed printing all this money, it'll be leading towards inflation, right? $3 trillion, $4 trillion in the last few months, pop the stock market. And that's one of the ways it's shown its ugly head. But you're saying the complete opposite. It's deflation that's coming. Maybe why is the whole inflation story not true? First of all, it hasn't been true for 13 years. Go back to 2009. Between late 2008 and 2009, the Federal Reserve expanded its balance sheet from about $800 billion to something just under $4 trillion. So they increased it by the 300%. And it was like, oh my goodness, they're printing all this money. We're going to get inflation. We never got inflation. We didn't have inflation for 10 years. We still don't. The money supply has nothing to do with inflation. Milton Friedman was wrong about that. The Austrian school was wrong about that. The Neo-Keynesians are wrong about that. Inflation is not caused by money printing. Inflation is caused by velocity of money. You know, it's, it's the turnover of money. So you can take the Fed balance sheet to $7 trillion. My friend uh, Stephanie Kelton, she's the big brain of modern monetary theory. They say, why can't it be $10 trillion? The answer is, it could be $10 trillion. But it's not necessarily inflationary unless you get the turnover. So I'll give you a simple example. Let's say I go out to dinner and I tip the waiter. And the waiter takes the tip money and takes a taxi or an Uber home, tips the driver, and then the driver takes the tip money and puts gas in his car. My $1 had velocity of three. It supported $3 of goods and services, the, the restaurant tip, the uh, taxi tip, and, and the gas. But what if I stayed home and watched TV? Then my money has velocity of zero. I didn't spend my money. There was no turnover. And I remind people, $7 trillion times zero is zero. In other words, if you don't have velocity, I don't care how much money you print. If you don't have velocity, you don't have an economy. Velocity has been dropping for 22 years. It started to drop in 1998. It's been coming down ever since. Now it had larger spikes down in the 2008 global financial crisis and the 2020 pandemic collapse. The clear line has been going steeply down and it's still going down. So my point is, and we need inflation. Inflation uh, is, is not good in some ways. But you can't print your way out of a liquidity trap. You can't borrow your way out of a debt trap. The only way to get out of it is with inflation. And the only way to get inflation is to change the psychology because it's not controlled by money supply. It's controlled by how people feel. And right now they're, they're saving. Savings rates are sky high. It's precautionary savings. People feel the prices are going to get lower. So they defer consumption. Now, 
I'm talking about consumer price inflation, which is what the Fed looks at and what's policymakers look at. If you, if you think the stock market is inflation, I can call it an asset bubble. Yeah, stock prices are going up. That's not inflation as economists and policymakers understand it. Those are just asset bubbles and, and they are happening. So the money has to go somewhere. I've heard of people got these $1,200 checks last, I think around last June, uh, May and June. They're probably going to get another $600 in the next month or so. What are they doing with the money? Some people are paying the bills, but a lot of people are investing in stocks. You got all these newbies, they're on Robinhood, they're first-time investors. They don't really know what they're doing, but they know that stocks only go up. They're not spending the money. They're investing in the stock market. They're just inflating the bubble, not doing anything for the real economy, which would come from spending. And there's something to be said for savings, but that's what people are doing. They're saving the money and investing the money. They're not spending it. So the money printing doesn't work. Yeah, no, it make, makes total sense. The money's out there. It's just the government needs to try and find a way to incentivize throwing it into the real economy, getting right. that there abundance is, there, mindset right. for consumers. That's right. And there is a way to do it, which I talked about in uh, the conclusion of the books, not to tease it, but <laughs> yeah, it's out there. What I tell people is that policymakers don't understand it. So I explain it clearly. I give two historical examples, two different presidents, one Democrat, one Republican in the 20th century who pulled this off successfully. So it does work. There is historical precedent for it. Central bankers have forgotten it if they ever knew. So they should read my book if they want to know how to get inflation and get out of the debt trap. But the point I make for the reader is even if the central banks don't do it, even if the government doesn't do it, you can. You can personally go on a gold standard, go on a hard asset standard and, and benefit personally, preserve wealth and make money, even if the government doesn't find its way. Right. So I guess the I was going to ask you about the Biden camp or anything coming down the pipeline, but it may not matter if they have another couple of rounds of stimulus checks. This money is just being diverted to the stock market. It's just not getting to where it needs to go. That's exactly what I'm proud to say. I barely talk about politics at all in the book, but partly for the reason you mentioned, which is it doesn't matter. Monetary policy doesn't work because of declining velocity. Fiscal policy, deficit spending doesn't work because the debt to GDP ratio is so high that we're through the looking glass, that what people are doing now is they're, they're saying, look, I don't know how it ends. It could be inflation. It could be higher taxes. It could be a debt default. There could be a number of different scenarios, but they're all bad. And so I'm just going to save more, uh, spend less on a precautionary basis to get ready for that day when either inflation kicks in or I have to pay higher taxes or whatever. And, and that threshold, by the way, is 90% debt to GDP. Right now, the debt to GDP has gone up from 106% pre-COVID to around 130% today. So this is for the United States. So the U.S. is now in the same league as Lebanon, Greece, Italy. There's your club. So my point being, we will have larger deficits. We will have more deficit spending. We will have more debt, but it doesn't work because we're through the looking glass. We're through that 90% critical threshold where now behavior changes and people don't spend the money. So monetary policy doesn't work because of velocity and psychology. Fiscal policy doesn't work because debt to GDP ratio is too high and people are getting ready for a bad ending. So it, Trump, the Biden administration, they're going to pursue the same policies. You can print money, but that's not stimulus. You can run deficits, but that's not stimulus. I always tell people, stop calling it stimulus. You can call it deficit spending if you want. You can call it money printing if you want, but it's not stimulus. It doesn't stimulate anything. Yeah, no, very interesting. For the guy under a few million dollars net worth, what would you be suggesting at this point for their portfolio? Yeah, I think I'd have about 30% cash, which sounds high to most people, but I, we already explained that. I'd have 10% gold, 
we're gold mining shares. There's room for uh, residential real estate. We talked about that. You need the right fund manager, but there's a way to do that. Uh, some for alternative investments. I have some money in some venture capital and startup type companies. They're risky, but they can be very attractive depending on the management again and, and the business plan. There's room for listed equities, but <clears throat> pardon me, I wouldn't have more than about, oh, 20% or so in the stock market. People say to me, Jim, you've got 10% in gold. How can you sleep at night? And I go, you're 90% in equities. How can you sleep at night? Because that's really the risky asset class. Yeah. That's something I don't have any paper assets personally. We're always trying to move people to alternative assets. It's either, do they take the money in their home equity or they take their glut of money in their stock holdings or mutual funds? And I'm like, I don't know if it were me, I'd take it out of the stocks, but look, that's just, who knows? But thanks James for coming on. Folks get his book, The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World, found on Amazon. And yeah, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.